you're new with us or haven't been in church in a while, Romans is in the New Testament. You can find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Keep going to the right, find Acts, and then Romans. And, and we're coming to the tail end of Romans. In fact, um, next two months we'll wrap Romans up. Um, we're going to spend the next uh, month, five Sundays, covering 14 and 15. And then uh, we'll finish up 16 in October. Uh, my plan... Uh, moving after that is starting the uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving, we'll start the Gospel of Matthew, um, and uh, it'll be there for a while. So, um, but we'll, we'll be starting the Gospel of Matthew when we finish up Romans. But I'm excited about this home stretch in Romans. Um, it, it uh, I think, really gets to the nitty-gritty of Christian life, because um, it addresses an area that Christians have struggled with in every era. Um, this is the nature of Christian life, especially when the church is growing and reaching new people. And by God's grace, we've, we've begun to see that. We've seen that over the years. Um, we, we have new people coming in. Church is vastly different uh, than it was just five years ago. And just keep going back in the time. Church changes as the Lord begins to draw new people to himself. And so the church, and that's a good thing, because the church is to be made up of people with different backgrounds, nations, ages, languages. And certainly when Jesus returns, this will be a reality. When all God's people dwell together in the new heavens and new earth where the curse is no more. But until that day, we have to learn to live with one another. Till that day, we are to preach to people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. And here's the good news that, that God promises that as we do that, as we're faithful to that task, that he will save some. And these will come into our midst and they'll join this worshiping community. And so herein lies the goal. God also said the dilemma. How are we to exist and cope with people that are different? Than us? How are we to bear with one another in love when we are raised in different generations, born with different personalities, come from various experiences and upbringings, have different economic concerns, and not to mention all our personal preferences? Most of us here have been raised up in the church. We have a, a, some sense of a Christian context, which also complicates things, doesn't it? You've come from a church, many of you, and, and you liked what was done at that church, and then you come here, and maybe there are some things that are similar, some things are different. Some of you are going to leave Oak Park, move away, going to take a church of your own. The Lord's going to take you other places, and, and you're going to have to learn to integrate in another church that isn't going to be like Oak Park. How do you wrestle with these things? And that's just us as Christians. Now consider what to do when the Lord brings in first-generation Christians who have no Christian upbringing, and they come into our midst. Now you might say, that would be great. We're reaching new people, people who are lost. We want to see them come to faith in Christ. Absolutely. But it's one thing to celebrate it. It's another thing to welcome them into your community group. 
They're going to break the social norms that we've been accustomed to keeping. They're going to do things that you're like, have you not read the Bible? No, they haven't. They're going to do things that are going to offend you. We do that to one another, let alone someone who hasn't been here for a while. Things that they're going to do or things they're not going to do that are going to make us uncomfortable. And that's a point that we'll come back to later. But for now, what I want us to see is that Paul addresses a dilemma. This dilemma in verses, or chapters 14 and 15, and really this whole section that we're going to see, boils down to press one point into our hearts. And this is that point. Welcome and receive one another as Christ has welcomed you. Look in, in chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is one of those things that is easier said than done. It really is. And we're going, and I'm, I'm hoping to press us. And just know as, as, I, as, I, as I press us, as I squeeze us, I'm squeezing myself. Because these are things we all struggle with. But as we think about this overall exhortation to welcome and receive one another, just as Christ has welcomed us, what he's calling us to is welcome one another like family, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in chapter 14, he begins with how to deal with one another in matters of opinion and preference. And then as we'll work our way through chapter 15, he'll conclude with plans to carry out the gospel where Christ is yet to be named. And you might say, well, how, do, how does dealing with one's personal preferences and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, how do those two things relate? Well, here's how they relate. If we cannot properly show charity in welcoming one another when we disagree over disputed matters, how can we even begin to think that we're going to reach people who don't know Christ, who aren't like us? In other words, this passage is instructive for us as we seek to carry out the Great Commission. And if we don't have our own house in order, how can we expect to bring others into it? Now, I want you to, to know that I'm not in some sense thinking that we are just a total dysfunctional family. I think we're just slightly dysfunctional. We all are growing. We're all uh, seeking to be made in the image of Christ. But I do think there are areas that we all need to grow in. And so over the next month, we're going to dive into matters of the conscience. And how do we bear with one another in love as Christ has loved us? Even, get this, when our conscience doesn't line up with the other person's. And this is one of the main issues that I think plagues the church today, and, and ours is no exception. Often, people leave our church and go to another because they haven't learned the principles of this text. And vice versa, people leave other churches and come to ours because they haven't learned the principles of this text. I'm not saying that's the only reason people leave. I'm just saying often. It's often the case there's a conflict, and the conflict results in not working it out biblically. We'll just go to the next place. 
and where I want to push us and, and, and encourage us is that the, the Scripture doesn't leave us abandoned to just, oh, try someplace new. Well, guess what? There's sinners there, too. And if you can't figure it out here, what makes you think you're going to figure it out there? And if you don't ever figure it out, you're never going to settle. See, when we don't understand the principles of chapters 14 and 15, when we don't know how to deal with one another, when we, and these aren't just minor disagreements, when we strongly disagree over matters of conscience, when we don't know how to handle these things, it breeds conflict, bitterness, jealousy, and pride. And when unchecked, it creates division in the church. And it repels the lost. A failure to understand the principles of these two chapters, I think, brings the worst of us out. It really does. The worst characteristics of Christians, I think, come out for a failure to really wrestle with the principles Paul's going to call us to wrestle with. And so I think this is good news for us. We're all going to grow over the next month. hope we're always growing, but I think we're going to grow. We're going to kind of put it ourselves in the pressure cooker over the next couple of weeks. And so dealing with matters of the conscience, it's proven difficult for the early church and even up till today. And it is always going to be an issue because we are we are sinners. It's like, well, we just, uh, I was able to celebrate the, the marriage of, of Joel and Heidi, now Joel and Heidi Dack. And one of the things that they're reminded of and one of their siblings who's been wisely married for a few years uh, later has said, hey, it's not going to be as uh, happy as it is right now all the time. Why? Because you're both sinners. And then when you add children to the mix, you've just added another sinner to the bunch. And you're not going to have the option of saying, well, I'll bail out. I'll try another. No, you have to figure it out. You have to apply biblical principles. Well, the same way we have to figure it out here amongst us. We just don't have the same expectation for our commitment to our church. And that says more about us. And so this has been an issue that has proven difficult for all churches of all generations because as the church by its nature, is seeking to save the lost of every tribe, tongue, and nation, of every background, that no one is out of reach. Well, therefore, this church won't look the same. It's constantly going to be changing, and that's going to be challenging to us. And so, even though this has been a problem throughout the whole of church, we're not alone. And the good news is that the Scripture doesn't leave us alone in dealing with these matters. And so, with those introductory remarks, let's read uh, the first 12 verses of chapter 14. This is what the Lord says to us through the Apostle Paul. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, 
and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Beginning here in Romans chapter 14, it's my prayer that we can rekindle, recapture the biblical virtue of showing charity toward one another when we differ. It's just another way of being gracious to one another. We are going to differ. We're going to think differently, but we need to learn how to be gracious to one another to be kind to one another, to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. That, that means we give each other the benefit of the doubt. We don't just jump to the worst possible scenario. We want to show charity to one another, and in doing so, we will accurately reflect the character of God to the watching world. So by this is all going to be introductory today. So um, we're, we're kind of setting uh, the table, setting the stage, if you will. I'm uh, going to answer a few questions and try to press into this over the next five Sundays. Um, but in doing so, I want us to, to, to look at three questions this morning. Really just going to look at the first two with the last one setting us up for next Sunday. But number one, what, what are matters of the conscience? What, what matters are we talking about? Well, we need to understand that. Number two, how are we tempted when we disagree? And then what's the solution for harmony? That's, that's where we're going this morning and, and even next Sunday. So let's look at the first one. What do we mean by matters of conscience? That these disagreements are the matters of the conscience. We need to get our mind around what we mean when we talk about our conscience. Well, we first need to recognize that Paul actually doesn't use the word conscience here in chapters 14 and 15. But I'd argue the idea is present. These are matters of our conscience. And, and that's really for two reasons. First, uh, he's already alluded to the conscience in chapter 13, which is connected. Chapter 13, how do we submit to the governing authorities? Well, that's something we disagree on, right? He, he says... We are to submit because of the wrath of God, but also for the sake of conscience. You're going to have to give an account to the Lord. And the thing is, is that some of us are going to think, and, and that's going to flesh out differently. 
And so in the same way, he's just pressing this into more or some different categories that were plaguing the church in Rome. But secondly, uh, there's a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Similar situation, although different, but the principles apply, and it has to do with matters of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And here in Romans, it's conflict between two different ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles. Well, in 1 Corinthians, between Gentiles amongst themselves. And those who feel like they can't go to the meat market and eat meat because it's been sacrificed to idols and their conscience is sensitive because they've just been saved out of that. It's like the person who maybe you've experienced the, uh, uh, the, uh, the burning of all your CDs and DVDs when you came to faith in Christ. Anybody do that? You're like, oh, this is all of the devil. i got to get rid of it. And then like five years later, you're like, what was I doing? Uh, uh, <coughs> He's dealing with those issues, but he argues the same way, but he calls it matters of conscience. And so I think that's what he's talking about here as well. So what is the conscience? Well, I have a definition for us up on the screen that we can put there. Our conscience is God's gift to all humans, whereby we have the capacity to make moral judgments, discerning what we believe to be right or wrong. You see that up there on the screen? Our conscience is God's gift to all humans, whereby we have the capacity to make moral judgments, discerning what we believe, and that's an emphasis there, what we believe to be right or wrong. And so Paul can talk about matters of the conscience earlier in Romans 2.15, where our conscience either accuses us or excuses us, right? Sometimes we're accused or we feel the guilt of the actions that we've made. You can go back to the, the point. You don't have to keep that definition up. We're sometimes accused. And sometimes our conscience doesn't accuse us when we do things. It can also be numbed. Our conscience can be numbed by which we're not affected. 1 Timothy 4, 2 speaks of false teachers whose conscience is seared. And the picture is like a hot iron searing something. It's numb. And so there's a danger for all of us that we can become desensitized to the sins around us and we can have a numb conscience. But on the other side, it can become overly sensitive. And that's kind of the issue that we're going to deal with this morning. And so in our fallen world, the thing that we need to realize is that no one's conscience is informed exactly the same way. In other words, each of us is accused or excused differently depending on the issue. And moreover, this is something that will produce humility in us, or at least it should. None of us have a conscience that's completely aligned with God's perfect will. And so this is where it gets difficult. Now, most of us, our conscience aligns over and overlaps on many areas. But there will be areas that, that one person, it falls on their moral compass, where for another person it doesn't. And sometimes that, wherever on the spectrum, it sometimes aligns with God's will, not perfectly, where someone is outside God's will. And that can look like they're adding things to Scripture, saying this is what pleases God when it doesn't. And then some who thinks 
They can do things and they think, oh, God's okay with it, and He's not. And this is where all of chapter 12 and following is about not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may discern the will of God. So we're all in process. We're all growing. We're all seeking to discern the will of God. But here's the reality. We're still fallen. We haven't been glorified. There's going to be differences. So how do we live with that? How do we interact with one another? And what we need to realize is that we're all in process. We're all in process of being sanctified, being conformed into the image of Christ. And this process, brothers and sisters, will not be complete to the resurrection. He who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this means that we're all going to be at different places with our walk with Christ, aren't we? We're going to be at different places. Some of us have been walking with the Lord for decades. Or some of us have just come to know the Lord recently. Do you really expect those new believers to be at the same place if a believer has been there for for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? But sometimes we act like that. We forget where we once were. And then you just take in other variables. Some of us have had great privileges, maybe growing up in a Christian home, or we were taught the scriptures at a young age where other of us weren't. You got an advantage at least in understanding the scriptures. Or maybe some of you have been able to go to Bible college or or seminary. That's like a pressure cooker of, 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 of learning the scriptures at a high level. Not everybody's had that great privilege. Or just some of us just learn differently and the Lord's doing different things in our lives. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that we're all going to be at different levels or or different uh, uh, um, spots along the the road of sanctification. And I would argue that's a sign of a healthy church. Many think, oh no, everybody has to be at the same level. That's a healthy church. Actually, I'd say that's an unhealthy church. Either, yes, everybody's so-called strong in the faith, mature, And they're not reaching anybody. The church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation who's lost their first love. Or you make the same mistake. Oh, we're we're not going above this, this shallow level. We're only here for the entry level people. No, that's not how God's church is to be. It's it's to put them both together. That's the beautiful picture that Christ is putting forth through us. And Paul recognizes these different, different places that Christians are at here in this text. Paul recognizes this when he identifies as some being weak in the faith. You see that in 14.1? As for the one who is weak in faith, he's talking to those who are strong. We're going to kind of define that a little bit more here. Those who are strong need to what? Welcome him or her, right? Welcome the one who's weak in faith. Receive them. And what's the example? As Christ received you, 15.7. Well, Christ certainly is the strong one. And if he received 
us while we were yet sinners, how much more should we receive one another as fellow sinners? That's, that's what he's getting at. So we see that some are identified as weak in the faith. Well, who are those who are weak in the faith? These are individuals whose conscience is overly sensitive. It's not informed. It's unaware, in this case, of their true freedom in Christ. They've added things, or they, they think there are certain areas they must restrain themselves from in order to be pleasing to Christ. Whereas others are stronger in the faith. You see this come, become explicit in 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, who are the strong? Strong are those who have a biblically informed conscience. There are those who, who understand the Scriptures more and understand maybe more what, what is pleasing to the Lord. And, and the onus is actually going to be on the strong to bear with the weak. And we're going to talk much more about this. So how do we function recognizing that we'll differ in what we believe is right or wrong? How we function? And and what we're going to see is, is there are rights and wrongs. Paul's not just saying it doesn't matter. The strong are actually the ones in the right. And the weak are wrong. They, are, they have a misunderstanding. And yet he's going to call upon us to welcome one another. And that's where some of us it's going to be very hard because we think in black and white. Yeah, there is black and white, but yet you're called to welcome one another. The principle of love covers a multitude of sins is going to be at play. So how do we do this? Well, first we need to recognize that Paul is addressing matters of, the, of, of opinion or dispute amongst Christians, not issues essential to salvation, okay? So that might ease some of your concerns if you're like, oh no, Chase is getting all liberal on us. There's no right or wrong. No, there are rights and wrongs. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're assuming that, okay? We're not talking about, well, you know what, they don't quite believe in Jesus. Welcome. That's not what we're talking about. Or they're living in blatant, explicit sin. No, the Scripture deals with that. But yet, how do we, as Bible-loving, Jesus-loving Christians, interact when we disagree? And we say, that's sin, and some of us say, no, it's not. Because that happens, and I'm going to give us some examples later. We need to recognize that when we're talking about matters of the conscience, um, disputed matters, or, or matters of opinion, we're not to quarrel over them. We're not to fight. That's what he's getting after. That doesn't mean we don't have conversations. But we learn sometimes to agree to disagree. And we do it with Christian charity. So we're not talking about matters of salvation, but neither are we talking about matters of small consequence. This isn't about, oh, these are things that Christians won't really disagree over. No, these are things that we'll deeply disagree over. How do we interact? And so Paul addresses situations where we deeply disagree, and he calls us to welcome one another, intangibly love one another despite those differences. So here in our passage, he raises two issues, kind of puts some skin on this bone here. 
he raises two issues of disagreement in the church of Rome that I think we can then kind of see how that plays in our life. The first concerned eating meat. This would be meat sold in the marketplace, most likely. And the second issue was observing the Sabbath. And he brings up the first example in verse 2. Look at what he says. One person believes, and I want you to hit on that. That's the strong. The one person believes. He's exercising faith. He may eat anything. While the weak person eats only vegetables. So one's acting out of what he believes. The other person just abstains. He is trying to show faith has a tangible expression. And Paul here is probably addressing the cultural conflict that's now occurred in the church in Rome between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Why would that concern meat? In fact, the Old Testament actually doesn't prohibit the Jews from eating meat, just some meat. But here you have people not eating any meat. They're only eating vegetables. What's happening here is is this is similar to Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1, if you're familiar, when they are brought out of captivity or they're brought into captivity from Jerusalem and they're set before the king with all his delicacies and they say, we're only going to have water and vegetables. Why are they doing that? Because the king, they're in pagan territory. And the pagans aren't concerned about making sure this food is kosher. So we're just going to play it safe. We'll only have vegetables and water. And that's probably what's going on here. We're outside of the land. We're in Rome. This is the Mecca of Satan. And they, that meat is made and cut and used in the services to worship the cults and the gods. We can't eat that meat. And then you got the Gentiles who've been growing up. They've been eating that, that meat all their lives. And they say, well, there's no problem with that. Jesus made all things clean. And so the irony here, and this is, this is instructive for us, is that Gentiles who are coming out of paganism, they understand that they can eat meat in the temple market. There's some more rules to that that Paul will express in 1 Corinthians 10. But in and of itself, they realize those, those are not really gods, and we're not participating in, in, the, in the worship. If I go to the meat and what's left over, I go to Kroger, and I pick it up in the ancient world. That's, that's kind of what, there's no issue here. It doesn't matter where that, what that meat butcher believes. I'm just going to eat a hamburger. They didn't have hamburgers back then, but hopefully you get what I'm talking about. Pagans understood that. These new Christians, in some sense. Whereas the Jews who grew up learning the scriptures at a far greater level were concerned that such meat was defiled. And they struggled coming out of Judaism to understand the fulfillment of what Christ had brought. And so if you wanted the conservative Kids who grew up in church were struggling when these pagans started to come to faith in Christ. And ironically, the pagans are right. And the people who grew up in the temple and these things were wrong. So how do they mesh? How do they get together? I mean, you can imagine 
we got a family business meeting. We're having a, a meal together. We only eat vegetables and water. No, we can't. We're going to have Miss Linda's meatloaf. We're going we're gonna to do this. That's sin. No, it's not. Yes, it is. We will not have a part in hell. Doesn't sound very much different than some of the stuff that happens today. What's going on? The weak have a theological misunderstanding. So these matters even apply, as we're going to see, to theological issues, to doctrinal matters. How, how do we discern what to separate over and what not to? We'll talk about that in weeks to come. In the same way, there's another issue that's bothering them. They, uh, they were in dispute over observance of the Sabbath. This is actually just the same issue. It's just where the rubber meets the road, where life is clashing. Where life clashes is where you separate, when you uh, associate with one another. Associate around a meal. We can't eat these things. Yes, you can. Conflict. Now, if you're a Jew, you're, you know that Saturday is the Sabbath, and you cannot work on Sabbath. Yet all these pagans are working on Saturday. Or they're having fun. They're going to the market. And they're doing all these things that are clearly sin. That's what's going on. And they're wrong. They're not sin. And so again, the issue is those coming out of Judaism were unaware that the Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. They, they, have a, they haven't made the connection yet. Where these other pagans came to that realization much more quickly. Probably just because it wasn't as different to them. And so again, it's a theological disagreement. And so in both of these matters, the church is made up of people whose conscience was informed differently. For numerous reasons. Some were weak, thinking that they had to refrain from eating meat and participating in activities on Saturday, where others were strong in the faith, at least in these matters, understanding that Christ had freed them from the law. We struggle with these things too, don't we, brothers and sisters? In fact, there are disagreements among Christians today. Should Christians observe the Sabbath? Right? Should we is Sunday the new Sabbath? And some Christian traditions have taught it to be so. We don't, we don't believe that. Our confessional statement doesn't hold us to that. Nor do I think, I think this passage actually talks to that. But some good Christians, Baptists, disagree. And that could cause conflict if you, if you hold whatever position you hold here at this church. If you're going to expect another person who disagrees with you to live up to what you believe about that matter. Let's get a little more controversial. Drinking alcohol. Is it a sin? Some of you say, yes, it is. It's not up for debate. Others of you say, are we even going to talk about this? And that's in this room. I'm not going to make a case for either of these today. I'm just throwing this all out. Whether Christians should go to movies or listen to secular music. Again, some of you are like, yeah, burn it all. Others of you say, redeem it, you know. <laughs> music styles and worship. You know, we say, oh, it's just my preference. No, some of you think it's law. We shouldn't have those instruments in church. We should have all things in church. 
You see, what about application of biblical principles? Yeah, I believe what the Bible says about the roles of men and women. This means women can't do that. I don't think that's what that means. That happens here. Or this is what it means to look like in the home. It must look like this. I, I, don't, I, I don't think so. There's two sides of those things. Or how do we apply that in the home, in the church, and society? I'm talking about matters of complementarianism, if you're familiar with that term. We believe that God has made both men and women equal yet distinct and, and created them and knitted them for, for a particular purpose and roles by which a wife compliments and her husband, a husband compliments his wife. Yet good Christians within that biblical framework and principles disagree how that flushes itself out. And that causes much pain and consternation. Think about interpretation of difficult texts from predestination to the end times. We're going to have disagreements, aren't we? This doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Somebody's wrong and somebody's right. So we've got to learn to live with one another. The way the church should be organized. We're, we're elder-led, but you know what? You might have come from an elder-led church that's very different than how we do elders here. Or you might think, hey, we need a little bit more congregational involvement. Or some of you think, we need a little less congregational involvement. What items do we vote on? Guess what? The Bible doesn't actually tell you. It just lays out principles. We have to ex exercise wisdom in how we do that. And so we have differences. Politics. Enough said, right? I hear conversations about Bible translation. And I'm not just talking about KJV only people. Although that would apply. But it's strangely enough that that same mentality is being applied to ESV and NASB. Though this is the only translation that God has inspired. Come on. I guess I'm showing my cards a little bit here. Sorry. <laughs> Parenting and living out the roles of men and women. I already listed this. How often should we take the Lord's Supper? You know what? That's the number one question I get from new members. Number one question. What stores are acceptable to shop at? Particularly when we have cultural crises about bathrooms. Some think you boycott them. Others think, get over it. Someone's right, someone's wrong. How do we live with that? Attending weddings of unbelievers. Homosexuals. How do, you, how do you wrestle with that? Issues of dating and courting. Especially when you got one family who has a different view than another one and their kids want to do that. <coughs> you can't just say eject button. <laughs> you can't. You got to learn how to deal with it. So depending on the issue, brothers and sisters, you may be strong and you may be weak. And I want you to know, our, you could go down that line of items and you would find even your pastors disagreeing. I want you to know that. Your pastors disagree on some of these items. But we love each other. 
and we serve one another, and we listen to one another, and we try to work things out. And I want you to know that same demeanor that we hope to extend to you, and we hope that that actually uh, uh, is exemplified in the whole church as well. And so you may have an overly sensitive conscience on one area, but, but as you listen to those things, and I know we all have that, oh, yeah, that's right, preach it, on whatever side you think I'm on on some of those things. But you may have a numb conscience as well. And you may think, oh, God doesn't have a problem with this at all. I'm so mature, and you're actually in the weak category. And that's usually when you knowledge is puffed up. And you've read a few blogs, a couple popular books, and you think you've got your mind wrapped around the issue, and you don't know a darn thing. I'm speaking mostly to our seminary crowd, by the way. So that's the issue. That's matters of conscience. That's what we're talking about, okay? And so when this occurs, you and I are going to be tempted. We're going to be tempted in one of two ways. And, and this is where we're going to, you can see, we've got to take some, some time. But how are we tempted? Well, we'll look in verse 3. And this is probably where we're going to stop. Verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So here Paul puts some flesh on the initial command that we're not to quarrel over matters of conscience. For the weak in faith, you think I should abstain from these things. You're on that side of the argument. You have an overly sensitive conscience. By the way, no one thinks they're in the weak category, right? That's the other problem, right? We, none of us, I'm not the weak person, you are. There's a sense in which by the time the exhortations, you can't discern who he's talking to anymore because the reality is we're both sinning with pride. But the weak in faith are tempted. Here's, here's the temptation. And I think you can tell who you are by the sin that you express in this. They're tempted to judge those who exercise their liberty in Christ. Where the strong are tempted to despise those who do not realize their liberty. Let's consider the first one and, and move through these quickly. First, consider the temptation of the weak. Those whose conscience, Paul is arguing, is overly sensitive and lack understanding of their freedom in Christ are tempted to think others who do not agree with them are in sin. That's, what, that's the temptation. Oh, you do that. I heard that they went there. You, you said, what? And they're a sinner. That's, that's what he's talking about. They're tempted to think that others who don't agree with them are in sin. Why is this the case? Because it would be sin for them to do this. And, and in fact, Paul's going to talk about that when we get to the end of 14. Anything that doesn't come from faith, if you think that is sin, it is now sin to you. So the trouble is, they think it's sin and you don't. And so they're tempted to judge people. How did that person vote? Oh my word, they voted for who? Can't be a Christian. 
When another Christian watches, they watch what? What someone drink? Where someone shops? How that family raises their kids? And because the weak in faith see the activity or practice of sin, they begin to look down on other Christians thinking, they must be not as godly as me. And they jump to conclusions, sometimes even questioning, I wonder if they're actually saved. And what results from this? Withdrawal, right? Rejection, separation. Bitterness begins to be built up through, toward a person or a group of people. And you begin to believe that you're more godly or righteous than others who disagree with you. And sometimes this results in you believing that you have the spiritual gift of rebuking. Right? I have the gift of correcting people. Just so you know, no one has that gift. And you're, it's automatic shutdown to anybody you come to. And so, but I've seen it. Happens in all of our lives, brothers and sisters. We've all been here. And you feel someone needs to set these people or this person straight. And so you either you take matters into your own hands, and you got your list or your massively long email. And you presume to know all their motives and all their heart. And you make accusations. You just don't believe the Bible. Or maybe you do it a little more passively. You come to me. Or you go to one of the other pastors. Do you know what so-and-so, and you want us to bear the sword? And what often happens, not saying that we're always, it's areas that we got to grow. This person's most disappointed when we don't share the same cries of shock and outrage. What? You don't, you don't believe this is sin? You don't think this is serious? I do, but show some charity. Do you understand where this person's at? It's often the case. So you might say, I, I, I'm never like that. Well, do you ever withdraw from activities in the church because you don't approve of who's present? Or you don't approve of that activity? Do you ever think very few take sin seriously like me? Do you ever think like that? And you're, you're talking about it, and you begin to find yourself on an island. Not even the pastors care about sin. You've just jumped the shark. Everybody's wrong. You know what the Lord says? Wisdom's found in the abundance of counselors. And the one who isolates himself is a fool. You won't listen to anybody anymore. And it brings great division and heartache. So what about the strong? You're not left off the hook. While the temptations manifest itself differently, it, it, the root's actually the same. It's still the sin of pride. And it has the same end result. Disunity, separation. Just comes in a different way masquerades differently. The strong are those who, who know their Bible and understand their freedom in Christ. And what are they tempted to do? Despise those who do not. Well, you just don't understand. 
And they're tempted to believe that those who are more restrained or conservative are actually inferior to them. And this often takes the form of mockery and dismissal. You're just a fundy. You're a prude. Oh, they're just stuck in tradition. You're so naive. Welcome to the real world, right? Join the rest of us normal people. You know, you might not say that, but you've thought it. And so you dismiss the one you deem as weak or inferior. You lose patience with them. Gosh, I can't deal with this. This is ridiculous. Are we really talking about this? Goodness, that's so 1950s. That's to us younger people. Are we really talking about that? You're just a millennial. It goes both ways. There's the age differences. And so in the same way, pride results in separating yourself from those not like you. You determine whether to sign up for an event because you see whose name's on the list. Oh, no, they're there. They're coming. Oh, my word, who invited them? And what are you upset about? We can't have fun if they're here. Right? Don't invite them. You're doing the same thing. The difference is you're in power. That's usually the difference. You're in the majority. So you can kind of set the rules. And you, you don't feel as dependent. And so you're usually the one stiff-arming. Avoiding. So the strong can become in their own way impatient with those who are struggling, lacking compassion, angered that others can't break out of their shackles and get with the program. And so in this case, knowledge is puffed up. And it's ugly. Now by this point, we should all be aware that depending on the issue, we're sometimes weak and sometimes we're strong. But whatever situation, we're both tempted to manifest the ugly sin of pride that keeps us from showing charity to one another. And genuine love and showing a love that covers a multitude of sins. So this is where we're going to kind of stop. I'm going to, but I don't want to leave us kind of just, oh gosh, okay, we're all sinners, we're wretched, what do I do? We're going to expand on this a little bit more, but I want to give you my three points for next Sunday. What's the solution for harmony? I mean, we might be looking at this, well, there's no hope. And, and usually, practically, on an individual level, that's what we, we practically do. There's no hope. I'm leaving that church. And so we just separate until we can find what we want. Let's assume that's not a solution for us. Um, what do we do? Well, here's three principles on how to live in harmony that come out of this text that we'll dive into next Sunday. First, we have to recognize that both are already acceptable to God in Christ. We've got to make that connection. This is a brother and sister in Christ. God's already accepted them. I can't not accept them. Second, we have to give charity, assuming that each are striving to live in honor to the Lord. Both people are making decisions based on their conscience, where it's informed, and they're striving, as you'll see, to honor the Lord in their actions, whether they're abstaining or whether they're not. 
And that's a good question for those of you who think you're strong. Have you really considered, does this honor the Lord? You'll see there, I'm jumping to next week already, but into verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I would say the temptation for the strong is you really haven't sat down and thought about this much often, whatever the issue is. Or maybe you don't aren't aware how maybe complicated it can be. I know I'm speaking vaguely, but we'll get to specifics in a future. Thirdly, we must recognize that we will each give an account for our own life before God. That's good news. You don't have to play Holy Spirit with anybody. And once you can get to that point, you truly love covers a multitude of sins. The Lord's going to deal with it. Look at that in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? Meaning, just think about the employment context. You work for another company and you, you look at somebody and you say, that's a lazy employee. Don't worry about them. They don't even work at the same company as you. They got another boss. Leave them alone. And he uses that analogy to say, well, we each have our own master, which is the same master, but he deals with us on an individual level. But look at what he says at the end. Before that master, he stands or falls, not you. That's for the strong and the weak. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He who began a good work in you will complete it. You know what? You're not where you should be either. Maybe you're stronger in that area, but you're really weak in another, and they're strong in that one. Leave that to the Lord. The sanctification process, yes, involves us, but at the end of the day, we stand before the Lord. And so here's the reality. We're not all where we should be. But by God's grace, we're not where we once were, right? And on that day of judgment, none of us is going to stand on the basis of our own righteousness, our own Christian pedigree, but only because the Lord is able to make us stand. And so by faith, even the faith of a mustard seed, we're hidden in Christ our Lord who died for our sins who died for our weakness, and he rose again to adopt us as his brothers and sisters. And if we keep that glorious truth before us, we'll love much. Why? Because we know we've been forgiven much, right? All right, let's pray with those words. Lord, please guard the unity of this church. Help us grow in our love and affection for one another because we are aware of your love and affection for us. And Lord, although we will strongly disagree on certain matters, Lord, I thank you by and large you have you've protected us from great division. Um, but Lord, the, the evil one will not rest idle. He will use these things to pit us against one another and get us off the mission that you have called us to and and so, Lord, I pray that we would be marked by love, a self-sacrificial love, that those of us who think we're strong, we would bear with the weak, and those who, who don't realize they're weak, Lord, they would not judge those who may be strong. But ultimately, Lord, may we realize that we will give an account to you. And by your grace, you promise you will make us stand on that day. Lord, thank you. And we pray these things with hopeful expectation in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, let's stand and let's sing, O Church Arise.